So we are continuing with our reading from the Bhagavad Gita. We are in the middle of the chapter 5. We just finished the shloka number 16 last time. This is a chapter which is called the Yoga of Renunciation of the Fruits of Action, which is the very summary definition of Karma Yoga. Here, Krishna also does a metaphysical travel through all the things which characterize the the state of enlightenment, the being that has reached enlightenment. As I told last time, Krishna, by making some of these statements, at the same time mentioning himself as God, even in the end of this chapter, in the last shloka, he does not speak about God in an abstract way, in a third person, like Brahman or something, but he calls the divine consciousness me, he says, he speaks about his identity with it. Krishna speaking from this position, he actually authentifies all the major metaphysical truths. He promises enlightenment. He promises that one reaches beyond ignorance and pain. He promises that one reaches a state of existence from where there is no more return, return in samsara, return in the limited conditioned existence. And that is why Please remember that although there is not a lot of direct teaching about the Karma Yoga itself, nevertheless this chapter is a sort of metaphysical primer. Like these are fundamental truths about the spiritual realization, about the destiny of the soul, about evolution, about where is the human being placed in the big picture, what is our Dharma, why we are here, and all that. It sets the target, it sets the standards very beautifully. And he ended the shloka, the strophe number 16, by saying, but in those whom that ignorance, which he mentioned before, is destroyed by wisdom, wisdom being above the mind, then wisdom like the sun, which means self-luminous, with no other source of light needed, with the light of itself, wisdom like the sun, illumines that which is transcendent. We cannot know that which is transcendent, which means God, the cosmic consciousness, we cannot know it with the mind, but the wisdom illumines it. For an enlightened being, that which is transcendent, which means God, is more visible than the normal world. As Ramakrishna said, I can see God better than I can see you now. It is obvious when you have that function, when you have that sense. It is said in parapsychology, it's a parlance, that there exists a sixth sense related to Ajna Chakra, which is clairvoyance, a sense of synthesis, of all the other previous five senses and more beyond those. There exists also a seventh sense. This seventh sense is the intuition, the supramental intuition 
of the existence of the cosmic consciousness. The cosmic consciousness is invisible with the first six senses. Only the seventh sense makes it clear, obvious. And then he continues with a few beautiful images, again setting great spiritual standards. We move to the shloka number 17, the first one for today's reading. He says, their intellect, those people who had the wisdom revealing to them the divine, the transcendent, their intellect absorbed in that, in the divine, their self being that, they being established in that, then they being intent on that, with that as their supreme goal, they go whence there is no return, their sins or their impurities dispelled by this knowledge, by this higher wisdom. Let's analyze this verse which says so many things and which basically presents the ideals. Their intellect absorbed into that, rooted into that. The intellect, as we would call it in a very generic way, symbolizes for the yogis the mind. The mind would be describable in yoga as the sixth plane, as the sixth level of the being. The sixth level of the being is not the seventh. There is a difference. The seventh level corresponding to Sahasrara is something global, transcendent. We describe in the very first day of our yoga courses, we describe the crown chakra as being something like the white light compared to the other six colors of the rainbow. The six chakras up till Ajna chakra end with that, they are like the six colors of the rainbow. Sahasrara includes all those and it transforms into something which is one unit higher because the white light seems to be a color in itself but it's not a color, it is the synthesis and the transcending of all the other colors. In a similar way, the mind needs to be transcended. You are having people who claim the mind is the highest power in the universe. The mind is the ultimate. Everything is made of mind. Those people stop at the level of Ajna Chakra. And the Christian mysticism, for example, states that stopping at the level of, at the level of plane 6 without reaching the level of the plane 7 is actually the level of the devil. It is the Luciferic level. 6 without 7 is not good. That's why the number of the beast in the book of Revelation is 666. Six, six. 6 looks like a Kundalini Shakti, which is rising, but it doesn't manage to be straight. It's like a Kundalini Shakti, which in the last moment it gets curved. So instead of sticking out through the top of the head, it sticks out through the third eye. That there you get a 6. Kundalini Shakti coiled in Muladhara and rising but not straight and vertical but not reaching except the level 6. That is why, like these are just connections which I want to show that every tradition has a way of explaining that. 
one should not stop at the level number six. That is why in, in the metaphysical workshop, every time when I teach a metaphysical workshop, I bring this up to people to understand that a spiritual path, either it is complete or else it is not a path. Something which does not lead to the level number seven is exactly like a mountain guide that takes you three quarters of the way up a mountain and then drops you in the death zone in the middle of nowhere. If you reach Ajna Chakra without reaching Sahasrara, that's not good. That is considered by some mystics to be a form of Luciferianism, not to be a spiritual realization. The level number six must not forget about the fact that there exists a level number seven, which is its ruler, which is although the level number six cannot perceive, the mind would like to see, understand, embrace, but alas, it cannot see, understand and embrace the level number seven, the Buddha nature, the Atman, the Brahman, the Paramatman, the supreme nature of the divine. And because of that, the level number six must always be subordinated to the level number seven. In the Tibetan meditations of Mahamudra, relying on many of the Tibetan older meditations from the Nyingmapa and other schools of Tibetan Buddhism, they have lots of visualizations. The Tantric Buddhism of Tibet is full of visualizations of deities. And you visualize deity forms and sometimes whole mandalas, like on the tankas, very baroque, elaborate, sophisticated things, very complex, which are extremely difficult to visualize. It is difficult to visualize a ping pong ball, but to visualize a whole mandala with a flabbergasting array of details is of course only for those who do it every day, hours every day, until the mind becomes capable of that. And this is called in the Mahamudra meditation and in the many tantric meditations, the stage of generation. You are fighting really hard to generate an image, to generate a, 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 a yantra, I'm sorry, a mandala, a graphic image. When you can do that, your Ajna Chakra is very powerful. You understand the nature of the mind. By understanding the nature of the mind, you understand the nature of the world. As great Tibetan yogi said, when my third eye was open and I saw that, then I could see trees and mountains and houses and people and people and places and all it was nothing like etched on the surface of the mind. It's like the whole universe is like etched on the surface of a lake and that lake is the mind. The whole universe is like a reflection in a mirror, says the Kashmiri Shaivism, and that mirror is like the surface of the water, so we see the universe because it is created by the mind. It is the divine Shambhavi Mudra which creates the trees and the planet Earth and this yoga hall and my body and your body. Everything is created by the cosmic mind. But hey, that is not the end of the process. If you stop here, you have reached six, but not seven. 
the Tibetans have a different system and they don't speak about Satan or Lucifer, so they do not classify this as a diabolic thing, but they still would make it clear that it's not yet completion. It, you are not yet there because there, start, there follows the second stage, which is the stage of completion. After generation, you have completion. And what is completion? Completion is that after you can visualize the universe, after you can do the Shambhavi Mudra of a deity, of a mandala, of a complex reality, and your mind has become aware of all this etching, all this etched reality engraved on the surface of the cosmic mind, and everything is just an image produced by the mind, it's true. A 3D super complex image which includes all the five senses, even the sixth sense is there, but still an image. Then you have to meditate on the fact that this image, in their case a deity upon which you meditate, this deity is actually in its turn made of void, made of shunyata. The essence, there is one step behind the mind, beyond the mind. And that step beyond the mind is the void. The Buddhists call it the void and that's a, sometimes a bit of an unfortunate name. That's why modern Buddhist authors sometimes prefer to call it the Buddha nature. This Buddha nature or the void is called in Vedanta and in the Upanishadic texts Atman and at the macrocosmic level Brahman, and this is what we call the Shiva consciousness, the Shiva nature, the cosmic consciousness, or with a terminology which is simple, although more provocative for the Western mind, of course, God. Beyond the mind there is God, and Krishna often alludes to this, because many people say, how can we control the mind? The mind cannot control the mind. The mind cannot witness the mind. To witness the mind and to control the mind, you need something which is beyond the mind and which rides on top of the mind, which can overpower the mind. That something is Atman. That's why as long as there is only mind, mind is its own master, so to speak. Mind does whatever it wants. And that's why we can understand that the Christian mystics and the Jewish Islamic ones, they would call this Luciferianism. Like there is no higher controller. In the moment when there is a witnessing consciousness, then you discover that you are not the mind. Even the cosmic mind, even a very vast ocean of mind, you are not that. There is something which goes beyond the mind, and that's something you are. This is how it becomes possible to control the mind. Your mind, being the master of its own, at some point gets fed up and says, No, nah, I don't want to do this. No, I'm fed up with this. And your higher self says, You must. That is your dharma. That is the will of God. That is the true wisdom. You must. Even the mind must learn that it is not the highest power. It is the second highest power. The highest power, even above the mind, is the consciousness, the supreme self, the void, the Buddha nature, the level number seven. 
And that is why Krishna mentions repeatedly, he says, with their intellect absorbed into that, rooted into that, like an intellect which has not found its master, is an intellect which is a bit luciferic. It is its own master. But an intellect which has reached wisdom and which is rooted in that, it is an intellect which has gained respect, humbleness. It is an intellect which acknowledges that it itself it is just the instrument of something which is higher and which is much more complete. The, in the analogy with the planes and the colors of the rainbow, the intellect can correspond to the sixth color of the rainbow, which would be violet in the classical range of colors. But still, the white color is not really a color because it contains violet and blue and green and yellow and orange and red. It contains all of them and it means something of a different kind because white is not really a color. White is a kaleidoscopic array of all the colors melted in one unit which looks beautiful and harmonious and you cannot see its component parts they are blended into perfection in like a harmonious blending and yet the white therefore represents a higher unit thus this little beginning of the sentence is very important because it tells us what to do to surpass the mind for some people they praise the mind Remember, there is something to be praised even beyond the mind, and that is the divine nature. With their intellect absorbed into that, with being established in that, which means their self being that. That's another statement. How, what does it mean that their self is that? Their little self, their personality has become that. As the Christian apostle said, both Peter and Paul at some time said the same thing. Paul said, for now it is not I who live anymore. He said, I died on the road to Damascus and now it is not I that lives anymore. It is Christ Jesus that lives in me. Which simply says, my ego has become surrendered. My ego is respecting the will of God. If God tells me, go to Rome and lose your head, get killed, I go to Rome and I will get killed. It, it's not my ego anymore. It is now the divine consciousness. This very important verse, therefore, the second part here, it says, with the intellect subordinated to the higher self, with the lower self having become the higher self, there is no more duality. There is the ego which is invaded by the grace of God. They, they, they are being established into that. They have become that. Intent on that. Established as intention on that. Which means completely focused on that. People here, they have another paradox. Because people say... If your mind is absorbed or subordinated to the Buddha nature, and if your ego is transformed into the higher self, then why are you supposed to be intent on God? You have reached. And yet, 
All the great saints have said this is one of those inexplicable paradoxes. Although you have reached God, although in a certain way you feel that you have reached states of mystical union, although in the language, in the abrupt language of Kashmiri Shaivism, we can say that you have become one with the cosmic consciousness, nevertheless, this does not destroy your aspiration. Like, I want to reach that, I don't want to reach that, because I reached it already. The human being that Krishna describes here has the intellect subordinated to the spirit, has the lower self becoming the higher self, and yet such a human being is intent on God. All the time focusing on God, exactly as the marvelous statement of Ruskin, who says, if you give to God the second place in your life, you don't give him any place. God can have only the first place or no place. Therefore, even a Ramakrishna, even a Milarepa, even a Jesus, even a Rumi, they are constantly intent on God. They have aspiration. They constantly focus on that. Why? Because they have reached already. It is inexplicable. It is a sort of a thirst of the soul which wants to throw itself into the union again and again because this is the greatest pleasure. The greatest blessing is to seek for the truth. You, you remain eternally a seeker in some way, not because you don't know it. Great mystics like Laleshwari Devi, the great poetess of Kashmir, they say, although I know that I am one with God, I pull back a little bit like, like, like stretching a sling just because I want to shoot myself back into God once more and once more and once more. It is like the pleasure is to melt into God, although I have reached. If you have reached, why the heck don't you just stay quietly there and stop speaking? This is the non-dynamic phases. This is the static aspect, the Purusha, the Shiva, the Brahman aspect. But there is a dynamic aspect, the Shakti of it all, the energy. And this Shakti, which is will and which is knowledge and which is bliss, icha, jnana, kriya, this Shakti has a dynamism. And if you enjoy an enlightenment without Shakti, that is an enlightenment which is dry, dead. It is Purusha without Prakriti. It is Shiva without Shakti. It is Brahman without the manifestation. And in the integral forms of spirituality, in like in the Kashmiri Shaivism, always what appears is a sort of preserving the liveliness, preserving the Shakti, preserving the energy. And therefore, although I have reached the Shiva consciousness, I still want to have the dynamics of seeking and reaching the Shiva consciousness again and again. It is a little bit like in a sexual union. It's not a coincidence that a sexual union is the symbol of the union between Shiva and Shakti and it represents in a certain way this endless aspiration. A man penetrates a woman but then he pulls out and penetrates her again, and again, and again, 
and again, and it's like I cannot get enough of you. Why don't you stay in there once you got in there? Because the pleasure of it is exactly this throwing yourself into the fire of it again and again. It's like a quest that has no end. In Bhakti Yoga, the great Bhaktas, they said, I want to keep myself a little bit separate from God. Not because it's nice to be separate from God. To be separate from God produces a longing. And that longing is tormenting. It's like, oh God, where are you? When are you going to give yourself to me? When am I going to find you? But that exactly produces this blissful thing which we call aspiration. The madness of the search which is exactly this Shakti, this divine aspect, the feminine aspect of all of it. And that is why even enlightened beings, as very well Krishna shows here, they are intent on that. They preserve their compass on God, although they have reached God already. And then you can say you should sit there and shut up, because you've got nothing to obtain anymore. Let those that have to obtain something. But Ramakrishna, even after he was very enlightened, he still was singing bhajans and kirtans and longing for God and falling in samadhi and falling down to the ground and doing crazy stuff like that. Why? He could have just stayed in nirvikalpa samadhi. But then that would have been an enlightenment without shakti an enlightenment which would have been much less powerful. You see somebody going in a state of trance and pop. They are gone for two hours. Then you sit there and look. And of course, if you have your own aspiration, you can say interesting. Oh, I'm very inspired. I saw this great teacher going in a state of samadhi. But the fact that you see them longing and rising and this upsurge, this udiyama, this upsurge of aspiration, that motivates you even more. That gives you the goosebumps. That gives you the thrill, the tremor of the heart and all the others because you are in the presence of the quest itself. There is a great truth in spirituality which says the path is the truth. The truth is the path. People say, I do yoga to reach the truth. It's like the truth is not yoga. The truth is Brahman, Shiva, and yoga is something which I'm going to throw away. But at a more clear, lucid looking, the truth is the path. The very path is the truth. Because the path is the dynamic part where you are seeking and where there is Shakti. When you have superseded the path, you are in a place where there is no more energy, in a place where there is no more dynamics, you are in the void, you are in the transcendent aspect of Purusha. That is why it is important that Bhagavad Gita hides so many such treasures. In just a verse, so many things are said and they can be explained deeper because Krishna mentions them all as standards. The intellect subordinated to the higher self. The self, the lower self, having been subordinated or transformed into the higher self. And one being intent on that, still having aspiration towards that. With that as their supreme goal, or as Maharishi Mahesh Yogi said, 
totally, wholly devoted to that. That's again the same thing. Why would you be devoted to that? Well, if you are that, then it doesn't matter. And yet, the dynamic aspects remain. Remains. Abhinava Gupta, in one of his glorious poems, says, If in this state the worshipper, the worshipped, and the act of worship cannot be distinguished from each other, then who worships? Who is worshipped? What is worship itself? Because everything is Shiva. I am Shiva, worshipping Shiva through the agency of Shiva. Then what is what? Who worships what? And yet, Abhinava Gupta doesn't say the worship must disappear. He teaches it. He enjoins it. He basically, so the worship remains, although you have a monistic, non-dualistic view on things, because that is precisely this aspect of the quest. Meditate often on this truth. The path is the truth. The truth is the path. Many people don't understand it. Many people underestimate their own spiritual path. Yoga, which is for some of you your spiritual path, is the truth. It's very difficult to understand that. People always diminish it because I cannot, if I would take that yoga is the truth, or Christianity, or Buddhism, or whatever you do, I would have to give myself body and soul to it. Like this, I postpone. I say, God is the truth. And when I will discover God, then surely I'm going to give myself 100% to that because God is the truth and He deserves it. But right now I'm doing yoga and yoga is just a tool. Yoga is, yoga is just a partial thing. From another standpoint, the path is the truth and you meditate on this. It has been expressed by other mystics marvelously. So, having those conditions fulfilled, those four conditions fulfilled, they go whence there is no return, they attain a state from where there is no return, with their impurities or sins, you can call it whatever, dispelled by the higher knowledge, not by the mind, by the wisdom. When you reach the wisdom which is above the mind, the karma is destroyed, there is no more limitation, ignorance, karma of that kind, and then they go to, where there, to a state from where there is no return. This is a very important statement as well. There exists a state, you can call it a state of consciousness or an existential state, from where there is no return as I call it, it's a spiritual realization. Once Archimedes realized the principle of dislodging liquid, the famous principle of Archimedes, as it's called today in physics, Archimedes cannot go back ever mentally, and that because he realized, he had an understanding, there was light in his mind, and you cannot replace that, he understood. And that's why, in a similar way, the spiritual realization, which is a much deeper, much more significant understanding than the, understand, than the realization of a scientific truth, but it is still a form of realization of the truth, then this spiritual realization, you cannot turn back from it. There is no possibility of ignorance again. 
as the people say, ignorance is bliss. It's impossible to reach that blissful ignorance again. You have to reach the blissful knowledge. And therefore, Krishna also says this, there exists a state from which there is no return. A great occultist like Rudolf Steiner, because he gets carried on by his own intelligence, six but no seven, he gets carried on and he can say things which contradict vehemently this thing. In the, in the spiritual science, one of his main opuses, one of his main works, Rudolf Steiner, otherwise a respected occultist who wrote many good things, says everybody reincarnates and so on. Even Jesus, the one who was Jesus of Nazareth, now at the time of writing that book, like a hundred years ago, he is born as a man in Iran and he does not remember that he was Jesus of Nazareth. That's not possible. There is a state from which there is no return. You can say, I don't believe that Jesus reached that state and therefore I can believe that he is in Iran as a Tom, Dick or Harry. But if he reached that state, from that state there is no return. It is impossible for Jesus to be born in a trite common life in Iran 18 centuries later after he has been Jesus the Christ. That's not possible. That's why I say Krishna can be a correction even for advanced occultists, even for spiritual teachers who have a great intelligence but they do not have the number seven. They are still at the Luciferic part of their mind. They haven't reached at the divinization where the mind understands fully. And he gives more standards as it continues. After this rich strophe with so many meanings, Krishna in the strophe number 18 says, Sages look with an equal eye on a Brahmin endowed with learning and humility, on a cow, on an elephant, and even on a dog and an outcast. There are other shlokas which speak about this. Here Krishna also mentions something which is closely allied to Buddhism, to the middle path of Buddhism, to the detachment of Buddhism, to the dispassion of the Christian fathers, that God is a loving father that loves equally the sinners and the virtues and at the level of the unconditional love, at the level of the cosmic consciousness, there is no difference. One which is virtuous and resides in paradise and one which is a sinner and dwells in hell are looked upon as equal by the cosmic consciousness. The cosmic consciousness cannot make discrimination. The discrimination comes from karma. The one who is in hell has a heavy karma and he or she gnashes his teeth. And the one that has virtue and very little ignorance left is enjoying the advantages of that because he has burned the negative karma and his wisdom and his intelligence teach him or her to create only positive beautiful karma thus creating a positive circle for the future as well. But otherwise, 
There is no difference. The comparisons used by Krishna may be provocative because remember, they come from a society which was very, very old. Traditionally, the rishis of India say that Mahabharata illustrates events which happen at the end of Treta Yuga and the beginning of Dvapara Yuga, which in the world cycles would correspond to the fall of Atlantis like 13,000 years ago. Scholars don't manage to agree on that. How come that the Mahabharata is written and refers to events which are 3,000 years old, 4,000, 4,500 years old, but at the same time it is purported to refer to things which are like 13,000 years old, which are immemorial. They are beyond any written source existing on this earth. There is even the cuneiform writing and the Tertaria alphabet and others, they are like five, six, seven thousand years old. There's nothing older than that. And that's why uh, Krishna is speaking from the standpoint of another world. But here, while he uses the values of that world, which for modern people may be provocative, nevertheless he speaks about the sages and says the sages are not like everybody else. Everybody else looks in a different. A Brahmin endowed with learning and humility is universally respected. In the Hindu ancient society, even the kings had to stand up in front of the Brahmins. The Brahmin caste, although they had no temporal authority or temporal power, and they had no money, no, no nothing of that kind, they enjoyed they enjoyed respect, total respect. A king that would not respect a Brahmin, or like in Thailand, a monk, would be considered a heretic, would be considered um, a materialist, an atheist, a demonic king, a real king impregnated by the values of that society, would first of all respect wisdom. He would ask counsel from the sages. Of course, Krishna is careful. He says, a Brahmin endowed with learning and humility. Because there are Brahmins who are fake Brahmins. Today, India is full of them. But even 4,000 years ago, that was the case. There were people who got to be Brahmins because they were born in a, out of a Brahmin family. But their behavior was not spiritual. They had no learning and or they had no humility. Either they were ignorant people just posing, but wiseacre, not hollow, not really learned, or they were learned, but then they were arrogant, they were proud and vanitous, and those are not you want to respect. The, the true Brahman is the repository of science, is the steward of the spiritual science, and he has to have not only that learning, but humility. Humility in India in the old days existed very clearly. So, a Brahmin endowed with learning and humility is the top. Even the kings bow to a Brahmin endowed with learning and humility. A cow, which is an animal, albeit 
it's a holy animal, it's the sacred animal of the Indian culture, it's like a divine symbol. On an elephant, which is also an animal, but this time it's an animal, animal, only that of course it's a very respectable animal. The elephant is a sort of the king of the jungle in their environment there. So the elephant is a respected animal. And even a dog, the dog is already an impure animal. And actually the list is very offensive. Or because either they did not intend to put them in order and they just jumped randomly. Or if they are put in order, it's very offensive. Because the last on the list is an outcast. A pariah. Like a pariah is put under a dog. A brahmin. A cow an elephant, a dog, or even an outcast. It doesn't matter if they are put in order, really. If they are put in order, it is provocative. But basically, it wants to speak about the whole range of life, from an impure animal to maybe someone who is a saint, or at least a learned and humble Brahmin. And, of course, the society does definitely not look with an equal eye. If a dog is wants to enter in a temple, the priests of the temple would chase it out with stones, with brooms, with what, because it's an impure animal. Even a cow is not allowed to do whatever it wants. It has its limitations. A Brahmin is honored, and the pariah, an outcast, is treated like shit, or was treated like shit in that society, for some of their internal reasons. People, even in the 19th and 20th century India, if an outcast would cast their shadow over them, passing on the street and the shadow is a bit long, like imagine what an ordeal it must have been if you were an outcast, to walk around taking care that your shadow should not hit other people that were kosher. Imagine you had to walk like a mouse near the wall. You had to sneak because if you would cast your shadow on somebody who was a decent citizen, they would be defiled for the day. They would have to go to the Ganges and perform rituals of purification. And they would hate you because you gave them this headache. And they would hit you, throw stones at you, yell at you. Like, what the heck, don't you know that you are not supposed to be around the pariahs were treated almost like they were lepers, although physically they had nothing. And therefore, the society was very unequal. Please mind the provocative thought that Krishna does not speak about the reformation of the society. Krishna does not say, and the society looking unequally at those, they are so stupid, they should change it. Krishna knows the society is made of unenlightened people. The society is made of spiritual pygmies, of spiritual dwarves that have no spiritual hide. The society is made of people ridden by ignorance, ridden by desires, ridden by selfishness and other such things. It is utopian to think that the society can be equal and beautiful. That's a utopia. Osho Rajneesh, at the time when he called himself Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, in one of his famous lectures, which he called Beware of Communism, 
he simply said only the Buddhas could build a communism like the one which was written in the texts of Marx, Engels and Lenin. Because normal people are extremely selfish and they will not be able to live in this kibbutz type of society where everybody equally shares with the others. There will always be a smart one who will stick their hand into the pool and do something and trick everybody else because they are more powerful, more intelligent, more cunning. Nature did not make human beings equal. Some people are naive like children and candid and innocent and defenseless. And some people have a shrewd mind, a strong ego, a lot of other qualities or defects depending how you want to look upon them. And that is why Buddha, I'm sorry, Rajneesh says, look at the communism. It started as a utopian ideal. Even the masters of Shambhala send a letter to Lenin, which is still preserved, which says congratulations because you eliminated the exploitation by man of a man by another man. Because that's how communism started. We are going to end the exploitation by the capitalists, by the rich, by the, there will be no more exploitation. We will be all equal and all that. Felicitation said this message that you stopped all these evils of a capitalistic rotten society such as prostitution and other things. But how long did this last? Because immediately the Bolshevism became a cruel, bloody repression. And then in the later years of communism, in most of the communist countries, it just became a hierarchy. It just became just another dictatorship where some people had privileges, power, they were an elite class. The communist politicians were living totally different from the workers. They started preaching, proletarians wake up, all proletarians are equal, the workers. And Rajneesh says, if those people would have been people from Shambhala, Buddhas from Shambhala, they would have managed to hold to this standard of humbleness, of modesty, because you have to be selfless to build such a society. But given the way the human beings are, to try to build such a society is a utopia, which is meant to fail. It's a fiasco from the beginning, because it is based on the utopian belief that people are going to behave and be nice. And they don't. Maybe ten enlightened beings, if they form a monastery, if they live in a hermitage, in a monastery, something, they manage to create a small utopian society which includes 10, 20 people. But otherwise, it's not possible. And that's why Krishna is not unrealistic. He says, Krishna says the society makes a difference between a Brahmin, a cow, and a pariah for a very good reason, because that's how people are. People have that kind of mind. It is a old dictum which says people have the heroes which they deserve. In Shambhala, nobody would have elected George W. Bush for president. You have to be in the 21st century America to choose such a moron for president. People have the heroes which they deserve. Intelligent, elevated people would have not gone into that place. 
But the fact that people have gone into that place defines them. It's like a finger which po points back at them. It shows who the society is because that's what they choose. People say we are evolved in the 20th century, we are civilized, but the 20th century was the most murderous and war-ridden century in the whole history of humanity. And the 21st century started worse. In the first 11 years of the 20th century, there was not so much war and destruction as in the first 11 years of the 21st century already. That is why it's like, where is the evolution? Krishna is aware. And Krishna says the society has its rules, and it is ruled by some rules which may seem cruel and unfair, because people are cruel and unfair. And when Jesus was asked, this kingdom of heaven that you promised to us, when it is going to come? And Jesus answered, to have a new kingdom, you must have new subjects. People must be new. Like he told them, you guys can have only this kingdom in which you live. You are producing kings and oppressors and others and others. That's simply the result of your karma. It's the result of your aspiration, visualization, mentalization. It is the result of your expectation. It is what you deserve. It is a subconscious. It is the collective subconscious mind produces this. The tree shall be known by its fruits. So Jesus says, you want the kingdom of God to come on earth, in which the lion shall lie together with a lamb, and there shall be no more killing. When will that come? When you will be those kinds of people, and not just 12 people that follow me. 90% of the society has to be like that, and then we will live in Satya Yuga. That will be called the kingdom of heaven on earth. But it's not possible to put ignorant, selfish, wicked, dark, demonic people in the kingdom of God. In a kingdom where there is something which would help, the demonic spirits oppose it. Today, the tourist guides, they evaluate the attractivity of different countries by if you one of the things is if you have access to booze when they talk about brunei or some other country they say that's a lovely country what a pity that they are so stuck up with their muslim shit because there is no booze available like the good old brits they want to get shit faced you know and then you cannot get drunk in a place where there is no booze so you have to cross the border to get yourself booze you know what's that even in the Thailand Lonely Planet Guide, it says, unfortunately, there is this stupid rule that they don't sell alcohol after 12 o'clock at night. In my opinion, it's a brilliant rule and it should be enforced in the whole world. After 12 o'clock, you shouldn't stay out like an owl and get drunk and do stupid things. You should start getting sober and go home if you have a family or other sleep, rest, why, why do you want to buy alcohol at 3 o'clock in the morning? What's healthy about that? When in America they tried to have prohibition, alcohol forbiddance, they got the bootleggers and crime and Al Capone and the likes of them. And everybody then said, oh, it didn't work. It should, 
It didn't work because people were not Buddhas. People were drunks. 90% of the population wanted to slosh themselves. They maybe didn't dare to say it openly because it didn't make them look good because they wanted to preserve a veneer of appearances. But actually, they loved their booze and it, the facts demonstrated it. You, you, it is useless to try to develop a non-alcohol, an alcohol-free society or an alcohol-moderate society when everybody is secretly longing to drink themselves out of reason. This is why I'm saying Krishna comes from a different society where there are different rules and they say those rules are because this is how the human beings are. But he doesn't speak about that. He says the enlightened one, a sage, an enlightened being perceives the same, looks with an equal eye. That's the equanimity of the Buddhist, of the Tibetan Buddhism. There is an equanimity about the Brahmin, the cow, the elephant, the dog and the outcast. Like there is not too much veneration for one, not too much disgust for the other. The extremes are being equalized in what Buddha says, preserve this middle path. This middle path is valid both in the tantric and the non-tantric types of teaching. Most of Bhagavad Gita comes where Krishna gives some non-tantric, Vedantic, some styles of teaching, but Krishna himself expo exposes or sets forth so many truths in a tantric way as well, and that's why this truth of his is universal. Either you practice Kashmiri Shaivism, which is a tantric teaching, until you reach Abhinava Gupta's realization, or you practice Advaita Vedanta until you reach Adi Shankaracharya's accomplishment, the result is the same. There will result an equanimity. Everything, all the sentient beings, are emanations of one and the same cosmic consciousness. Therefore, all of them can be treated with equanimity. Of course, it doesn't mean that a sage is an idiot and cannot see the difference between a dog and a human being. Like, they have different needs. They are on a totally different stage of their evolution. That's why their goals are completely different and that's why they deserve something completely different. That is there. But at the same time, there is this perception Although everybody has their dharma and karma and they are on various levels of the wheel of dharma of the cosmic ladder, everything is Brahman, everything is the divine consciousness projected into manifestation and therefore everything has to be looked upon with this equanimity. He says in the strophe number 19, even here, which means in this life, in this world, he means in the manifestation. Even here, the universe, actually he uses a word which means birth, samsara, everything. It means the all, everything, the universe. Even here in this world, the universe is conquered, overcome by those whose mind is established in equanimity. Understand this, equanimity is beyond spirituality. He says, even in this universe, 
Everything, everything, the universe is conquered, is overcome by those whose mind rests in equality. You want to reach richness, power, scientific knowledge. If you have equanimity, you conquer one of the biggest obstacles is unequanimity. For example, in the tantric tradition, in the yoga tradition, we have five elements. The universe is built out of five elements. But yet, in astrology, the human beings are born only out of, the f of four. The first four elements. The fifth element is not represented. There are four elements which are placed like the corners, the sides of a cross, north, south, east and west. And they are earth, water, fire and air, corresponding to the first four chakras. And then there is a fifth element, which is the quintessence of all the others. The quintessence, the fifth of the essences, literally in Latin, quinta essentia, quintessence. The quintessence, the fifth element, called in Sanskrit akasha, corresponding to Vishuddha chakra, is a sort of a background element which fills up the universe and the galaxies, and it is equal. It's everywhere. Akasha is here as well as between the earth and the sun in the void of the cosmos. And this Akasha represents a harmony. For example, if you have too much earth, too much water, too much fire, too much air, then you cannot reach Akasha. Akasha in the Tibetan Buddhism and in Svara Yoga from India is presented like the fifth element which is in the middle of that cross. Imagine that that cross is uh, balanced in the middle. If there is too much in one of the corners, then you cannot keep it in the middle. The middle is only when there is a sort of equanimity, a sort of balance. There is equal amounts of earth, water, fire and air, and then you have akasha. That is why the fifth element is much more difficult to reach than the first four. The first four are given by astrology. They are given by a lot of things. But to reach the fifth element, you need to have balanced all the four other ones. And that only then you have the fifth element. That's why every man or every woman that has an arousing of Vishuddha chakra becomes a human being of harmony. Not too much, not too little. It is very improbable to find in a man or a woman with a strong Vishuddha chakra, too much earth or too little water or too much fire or too much air. The elements are automatically balanced if that person has already reached Akasha, something of Vishuddha. And that is why, remember that equanimity is a high power of the mind. As long as you are in the lower four levels, you are in a soap opera. In a drama, there is an earth drama based on laziness and greed. There is a water drama based on sensuality and emotions and lust. There is a fire drama based on power and ego. There is an air drama based on movement, freedom, lightness. But all those are a drama. In the moment when you go to the fifth element, there is no, not so much drama. Human beings that have reached Vishuddha, 
and Ajna, therefore higher than the four elements, there is automatically a sort of higher witness. It's like you can look at yourself and see the drama and laugh of yourself and fix it in a certain way. You don't lose so easily the balance. And that's why Krishna says, well, even here in this life, the universe is conquered by those whose mind is established in equanimity. Because equanimity gives you a higher power of the mind. Verify people of great power, Alexander the Great, or I don't know, Warren Buffett, to take a modern level. You will discover, if you will get to study their personality, a certain detachment, a certain equanimity. It's like nothing really matters. I am above these things. That's what gives the power to do some things which are beyond the average human. You are not trapped into the swamp of drama. You can rise a little bit above the drama and it is very important. Therefore, remember, when somebody tells you have more equanimity, <coughs> be more detached, and people say, yeah, but you cannot really reach your goals if you are too detached. Krishna says the contrary. Again, there are people who say, but I want to be dissatisfied. If I'm dissatisfied, I get motivated. That's not true, says Krishna. If there is a certain equanimity, everything in this life, even here in this life, the universe is conquered by those whose mind is established in equanimity. Flawless indeed and equally present everywhere is Brahman. Because equanimity, akasha, is a sort of reflection of Brahman. For example, akasha in India is called space. And they say God is like space. You see space and yet you don't see it. Space is here, but you cannot really say that you see space. You see the air between us. You see the light in the room. You don't really see the space. The space seems to be an abstract concept. And yet we all know that there is space present here. God, they say, is like space. Omnipresent and yet you don't see it. God, another meaning of the word Akasha, is the sky. <clears throat> Very often God is considered to be in the sky. The kingdom of heaven is the heaven. The heaven is God. And you compare the sky to God because it's everywhere. There are other meanings, but Akasha, the fifth element, is an element which pervades the whole universe. It's equally present everywhere. It impregnates the universe, just like God. But wait a second, Akasha is not God. Akasha is an energy pertaining to Vishuddha Chakra. Yes, but the higher you go, the more the resemblance to God becomes close. It's like a multiple reflection in a series of mirrors. Akasha is maybe not the first one. The first one is the mind, level 6. And then under level 6 you have level 5, Akasha. Akasha is close to God. The mind, the universal mind is almost like God, yet not God. And Akasha is almost like the mind and therefore almost like God. And therefore, he says, indeed, flawless and equally present everywhere is Brahman. If your mind, if your Akasha, 
if your elements manage to preserve this equanimity, you are aligned with God. God has equanimity. It's true that various Puranas and legends from India, texts from the Old Testament of the Jews and the Christians, and quoted in Islam as well, they present the Judeo-Christian Islamic God as sometimes being angry, jealous. Those are, in my humble opinion, just projections of people. People try to make God according to their own expectations and temperament. But a higher view at the divine reality says that God never gets angry or envious or anything because the divine consciousness is characterized by equanimity. If you do something stupid, your karma is your own reward. It doesn't need to be, you don't need any angry God to bite the dust. You bite the dust anyway, and God is not happy that you bit the dust. God is not sorry that you bit the dust. Everything is just the way it is supposed to be. It is Leibniz who meditating on these things, he said, we live in the best world that there can ever be. People are provoked by it and they say, what do you mean? This is the best world that there can ever be. Given who we are and given the drama, this is exactly what it is supposed to be. Reality is exactly what it is supposed to be. It can't be anything different. Everything is perfect from the standpoint of God. The cosmic consciousness doesn't need to budge a finger. It can just witness things. From the standpoint of Sahasrara, we live in a perfect world. Although this perfect world in our drama universes is full of pain and terror and limitation and all the other things. And therefore, he concludes, therefore, they are established in Brahman. He said before that they have to look with equanimity on a Brahmin and a dog and an outcast. And here he explains. He says, even here in this life, the universe is conquered by those whose mind is established in equanimity. Flawless indeed and equally present everywhere is Brahman. That's why equanimity has a value. Because God is equally present everywhere at all times. And that's why equanimity is just a copy. It's just we are copying God. Exactly as when Jesus says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. We copy. We clumsily imitate. But when we copy, we have resonance. It is like analogous triangles in geometry. You have three triangles and all of them are, let's say, equilateral triangles. Then you have a flow. There is resonance. This triangle resonates with this, resonates with this. But if one of the triangles, you skew it and you make it uneven, then it doesn't resonate. It's like an antenna. This antenna fits with this antenna. This mirror fits with this mirror. But then if you skew it, then it doesn't fit anymore. That's why in the moment when you copy the divine, that's NLP. It's called modeling. It's neuro-linguistic programming. You are copycatting God. You are copying the divine nature by making yourself similar to the divine nature. And the divine nature is equanimous, universal. People say, I cannot love two people in my life. 
If you cannot love two people in your life, you are very far from God. Because God can. God can love everybody. That is why as long as you have not surpassed personal love, you have not reached even Vishuddha Chakra. The first sign that a man or a woman reaches some Vishuddha Chakra is that they can become a bit detached and love impersonally, transpersonally. They can love Shiva or Shakti. I remember once there was a tantric man, he gets in love with a girl in a relationship. It's an old story which I happen to know. And then at some point, although things were going fine, they, have a, they were going very little into that relationship. They have a separation and then each one of them finds themselves into another relationship. Basically, the woman goes into another relationship. And then years later, the man asks her, what was wrong with that relation? Why did we stop? Why did you have to go away? Because I didn't do anything wrong and everything from sexually to effectively, everything was going fine. There was chemistry, there was everything. And she told to him, it's because you wanted to love the goddess, not me. That's the manifestation of the drama. That's the selfishness. You want it for you. It irritates you that the man with whom you are loves Shakti. But that's such a stupidity because you are Shakti. And the more the man loves Shakti, the more he loves you. But it's the egoism. I want you to love me and today forget about Shakti a little bit. I want a little bit for me. That's like a dog that got a bone and growls for it. I want a bone, not all the bones in the world. I want just my little share here. This is a drama. It's falling under Vishuddha Chakra. At the level of the Vishuddha Chakra, we have the first level of equanimity of balance, of the elements, of harmony. And therefore, he says, Brahman is everywhere, even in this universe, this equanimity gives you a higher vantage point. And therefore, indeed, those sages, which were mentioned in the previous strophe, therefore, they are established in Brahman. Because they copy Brahman. They are like a similar triangle, like an analogous triangle. They copy, they align themselves with the divine. There are people who say, but I don't want to be like that. That is just a rebellion against God, a revolt against God. It's exactly like the women and the men who say, why did God make women so and so? Why did God have to make men so and so? That question is totally stupid and useless because you will not change the universe. The most intelligent thing is to adapt to the universe the way it is because it is the divine will that has created this playground as it is and it is not yours or mine to challenge the divine consciousness and say you've done a big mistake, you've created women too verbose and you should take that away. It's useless. Therefore, we need to find this attunement. And he continues, he gives these very great standards. Resting in Brahman, resting in Brahman, established in Brahman, that means being in a state of equanimity, being in a state of higher consciousness, with steady intellect, 
That means the mind not moving, not too agitated. The mind is appeased to a certain level. Undeluded, which means free from delusion, like not understanding Maya, having discrimination. The knower of Brahman, so it's a person that has Sahasrara and the good balanced Ajna, because that's what it means in yogic terms. Neither rejoices on obtaining what is pleasant, not grieves on obtaining what is unpleasant. That's one of the eternal themes of the Indian spirituality, both with Buddha and with Krishna and with the Upanishads, that one should be equal in pleasure and discomfort. This, of course, again, does not mean an idiotic thing, because Krishna himself is in a battle where he wants to win. And you could say, Krishna, you will be the first. If you, it's unequal, either you win or lose, then why the heck do you do this? Krishna says, it doesn't matter if you win or lose. You have to do what is right, what your consciousness tells you that is right, and which is the Dharma, your Dharma. And that is why he says, he who neither greatly rejoices on obtaining what is dear to him, nor grieves much on obtaining what is unpleasant, whose intellect is steady, who is free from delusion, he is a knower of Brahman, established in Brahman. It is another measure of the spiritual realization. It is another way of understanding detachment. Neither greatly rejoicing on obtaining what is dear to you, nor grieving much on obtaining what is unpleasant to you. I remember when my chiropractic teacher was a very spiritual man and a monk, got some symptoms of disease, he got some pain, something, I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was he was 88 years old or something, and he got further discomfort. He was falling apart as age dictates, and he was not having the pleasure, the satisfaction, although he was exceptional in so many ways, and even physically, still he had to obey to the laws of time. And at some point, he gets some further damage. I don't know, he lost a tooth or something. And he said, yeah, now this also had to befall me. And then he signed himself with the sign of the cross because he was a Christian monk. And he said, thanks to God for this also. Like, he was equanimous. Either he would win, either he would lose. He would be grateful to God, exactly like Job, God has given, God has taken, God be praised. And he was going forward with his equanimity. It didn't stop him from teaching me chiropractice. It didn't stop him from treating people. It didn't stop him from doing tens of exorcisms and other powerful rituals. It didn't, he was just going on. Now he was feeling just worse than before. And he was clenching his teeth setting his jaw, not becoming grumpy. He was thanking to God even for this because it's a lesson and he was just going forward in his evolution. So, he who neither greatly rejoices on obtaining what is dear to him nor grieves much on obtaining what is unpleasant, whose intellect is steady, who is free from delusion, who he is a knower of Brahman, established in Brahman. That's another way of looking upon this spiritual value. 
with the self number 21, with the self unattached to the external contacts, that means what comes through the five senses, he discovers happiness in the self. He's, he whose self is untouched by external contacts knows that happiness which is in the self, which means you don't get pleasure from smell, taste, sight, touch, or hearing, then what else is left? There exists a happiness which is in the self. You can be happy with yourself. You can be happy because you exist. You can be happy because God exists, because existence exists. There are lovers who reach at a high level of love and they say, I love you because you exist. I am thankful because you exist. That's all I need. The fact that you exist is making me blissed out. I'm grateful that the universe has created you. This is again a spirituality which is in Vishuddha, Ajna, higher than the drama of the four elements. It's an equanimity with the self unattached to external contacts. Like if you make a meditation in which you don't focus on the senses, if you go into a sensory deprivation device like a samadhi tongue, if you practice pratyahara, which is the yogic way of isolating from the external disturbance, then he discovers the happiness in the self. This is a very important threshold. Many people, they get bored. They need to see something. They need to hear something. They wouldn't stay in silence. They would play music. They would watch television. They would have some agitation. They would put an incense stick. They would do something to tickle one of their senses. But there are people who don't want anything. They just stay in a cave in the dark and they just want the void. Nothing. Nobody. Nothing. No image. No color. No landscape. No smell. No taste. No nothing. They don't want anything. They just want to be suspended in the void. And then you, many people, ignorance, people that have not reached that level of profoundness, they say, what can you find there? That's the void. It's emptiness. That's why it's called the void. But the void is not empty, etymologically, semantically speaking. The void is not empty like nothingness. The void says... The Buddhist literature is warm and alive. It is eternal and absolute. It is perfect and infinite. The void is not the nothingness. It represents something which is beyond the mind. And because of this you cannot describe it with the mind or experience it with the senses. That is why here is a method. Sensory deprivation. He says with a self unattached to external contacts. Like cut from the five senses and he discovers happiness in the self. There is another happiness, not the happiness produced by the five senses, which is transient and which is yin and yang. Now you have a pleasure, then you have a pain. It always compensates because in this universe the plus and the minus always have to be equal. If God creates a proton, in the next minute God must create an electron as well, because the universe must remain balanced. As much yin, so much yang. If there is pleasure, then there is also displeasure, not to call it pain. 
and that is why those that seek for pleasure are bound to fail. Only those who seek for happiness, they will reach it, because happiness is not pleasure. The main mistake of the ignorant people is to think that God and happiness is something which belongs to the five senses and it comes from exciting and satisfying your five senses. But that is not happiness. That is just pleasure of the senses, which can be very desirable, but which sooner or later will pass away and it will be replaced by its opposite. After every hill, obligatorily there comes a valley. There is no hill that can go on forever. Sooner or later, every hill in this world must peak, and after the peak, a downward slope goes. Inevitably, always, forever. Yin and yang balance each other. That's why set your goals straight. Do not chase the rainbow. Do not chase the unattainable and the impossible. Trying to attain 75% pleasure and 25% pain is utopian. The pleasure and pain are 50-50, always. It's not possible to reach more or less, only in some periods of time. For five years you can reach more of that, but wait, the wheel is turning sooner or later. And that is why we are chasing for happiness, not for that. And that's why he says... With a self unattached to the external contacts, that's a very good meditation, Samadhi Tang and other such things, he discovers happiness in the self. I'm happy because I exist. I'm happy without any reason. If you ask me why I'm happy, I don't even know. I wake up in the morning and I shine with happiness from inside. And I do have a toothache. I have a toothache and I'm happy. Because my happiness is not related with the pain or pleasure. Happiness is something which shines from within and it is something else. There is the happiness in the self. And the happiness, I mentioned that in a lecture, which probably is recorded and you can access it, that this is the problem. People want to be loved or to love other people or praised or valued for what they do. But very few people love themselves or others or praise or value themselves or others simply because they are. You are a miracle as you are. You are a miracle. You are a flower on the tree of God. You are the cosmic consciousness incarnated in matter. You are dust turned alive and conscious. That's a miracle. But we refuse to, to see that, to see this intrinsical value of life and consciousness. And we always think that if we climb Mount Everest, we are going to be a better human being. If we help an old lady cross the street, we are going to be a better human being. Such people always lose themselves into actions which are not karma yoga, not detached, because they constantly have a hole to fill up in their heart, because they feel unworthy. You have to learn to love yourself, because that's the only way to discover the divine. You are divine as you are. Love yourself, praise yourself. And remember, this love is not selfishness. 
Because as St. Augustine said it, if you truly love yourself, you would want to give yourself the greatest gift that exists. And the greatest gift that exists, in case you never knew it, is immortality, is everlasting life. And so if you are in love with yourself, you will do yoga and meditation like crazy because you will want to give yourself everlasting life here, now, in this lifetime, in this body. But if you don't love yourself, then your subconscious mind says, ah, I'm very shitty, the DNA from my parents was not that good after all, I grew up in very adverse circumstances, I think I'm going to die and try the roulette next time, because next time I'll probably, God will produce a better issue of me. There is no better edition or worse edition. You are fine the way you are because you are God and God cannot be more or less. But acknowledging this, accepting this is equivalent to full enlightenment because then you take a responsibility. Then you understand that childhood is over. Ignorance is over. A human being that discovers this level of consciousness has to shoulder the whole universe on their shoulders. If you admit that indeed you are happy in the self, with the self. Ramakrishna, a whole gathering had congregated to decide if Ramakrishna was an avatar or not. How important can that be? when there are avatars once every 2,000 years or something, once every 1,000 years you have an avatara and an important congregation of pundits, yogis, swamis and whoever had gathered in Dakshineshwar to find out if Ramakrishna had the signs that characterize an avatara and by the way they decided that yes, this young man must have been an avatara. And meanwhile, Ramakrishna, while in his presence they were debating his case, Ramakrishna was playing with some pebbles in the sand like a retarded kid. He was just lolling a few pebbles in the... He never paid any attention. He was just in a world of his own. He, I, maybe he was even producing some cooing sounds or something. He was going like... And the guys were discussing the very important issue if he was an avatar. He was not touched. He was happy for what he was. He was demonstrating. He was the immediate demonstration of the fact that he was a divine being. Because he, he was not trying to say, because this child walks like this, because this child has a skin like this, because this child said and did like this, then he is an avatar. You are not an avatar or the divine self because you did something or you didn't do. You are. The only problem is to accept it and to live it out in your life. And that is why with the self unattached to external contacts, he discovers happiness in the self. Practice Pratyahara. Cut the senses and try to discover what is left. In the beginning, it will be scary, boring, dark, like somebody throws you into a samadhi tank and it gets very boring. And in the middle of that boringness, something blossoms. Something from within. The happiness of you 
being happy with yourself. You don't need anybody to confirm it to you because you already are the confirmation of that. And he continues, just to conclude with 21, with the self engage in the meditation of Brahman, so meditating on this supreme consciousness, he attains to endless happiness. The little happiness in the self which he discovers, then with the self engaged in the meditation of Brahman, he attains to the endless happiness. Because in the beginning, he discovers the happiness in the self. That is what we call in this yoga school, the revelation of the self. A moment of ecstasy in your heart, where you may shed tears of devotion and aspiration, and you feel so happy, because you have discovered Jivatman. But beyond Jivatman, there is Brahman or Paramatman, the higher self, the universal self. The self is perceived at a microcosmic level, me, the microcosm, and then you can rise your thought, if I am so happy with myself, then what, how is God happy with himself at the level of the macrocosm? And this second stage of the meditation, to go from the microcosm to the macrocosm, reaches not to happiness. He says for the first... He discovers happiness in the self. And then for the second, with the self engaged in the meditation of Brahman, he attains to the endless happiness, eternal happiness. That is called in yoga, ananda, bliss, ecstasy, beatitude. There exists a beatitude in being God. It's good to be God. It is ecstatic to be God God lives in the ecstasy of himself, of oneself. And therefore, cutting, this is a little bit of a Vedantic method, because it says, cut from the senses, find the happiness in the self, find the happiness in the greater self. The tantric tradition produces the happiness sometimes by even focusing on the senses. They say, why would you cut the senses? Ah, it's because people get blinded, distracted, and attached by the senses, and this is playing more safe. Cut all the senses, and then you will be forced to discover in the sense the happiness in yourself, because otherwise the whole thing gets terribly boring and scary, and lonely, and nothing. But there are other methods of reaching Ananda, not only this one. What Krishna describes here is a typical Vedantic meditation, of doing Pratyahara, falling into the Jivatman, and from there moving to Atman Paramatman, the Supreme Self, moving to the level of God, of the universal happiness. It is nevertheless worthy remembering that, in the next paragraph, actually Krishna explains that this hunger for the enjoyments of the senses, this is a delusion and it is meant to disappointment, but we are not going to read this tonight. The shlokas number 21, 22, 20, they are a bit related to each other. However, due to the time passing, we will stop here. We stopped at the shloka number 21. We finished 21 and prepare for 22 next time. Now let us remain silently in meditation for a few moments so as to allow the 
wisdom of Krishna to sink deeper in our core, in our essential being, thus generating more aspiration, more discrimination, more light in our spiritual being. And that will do. With this we have finished for tonight. We'll meet in the following satsang next week for the continuation of this.